Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. The tumult of the Trump impeachment has distracted from what in more normal times would be huge stories framing burning questions, and we turn to one such question today. It's deeply important in itself, raising grave issues of war and peace, and it's also deeply important for what it means in constitutional law terms for the separation of powers between the president and the Congress and the president and Congress's shared war powers, namely the United States killing of Qasim Soleimani, considered at the time of his death the second most powerful person, state official in Iran, behind only Ayatollah Khamenei, whom he served as basically his right-hand man. So as we delve into these questions, it's not crazy to have in mind a missile strike from, say, Russia that targets and kills Vice President Pence. How would the country consider it and react to it? And to unpack and analyze this surpassingly important issue. We have a fantastic panel of experts about both this episode and the war powers in general. They are all first-time visitors to Talking Feds. We are very grateful for each of them, starting with Jack Goldsmith. Jack's the Henry L. Shattuck Professor of Law at Harvard University Law School. He's the author of many essential books, case books, and articles on terrorism, national security, internet law, and more. I highly recommend in particular his seminal, The Terror Presidency, Law and Judgment Inside the Bush Administration. And then want to add a brief word about his most recent book, which is a departure and a fantastically good read. Jack's stepfather has long been suspected to have played a role in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Yes, you heard that right. Former president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. His latest book is a memoir and exploration of that abiding mystery. Jack, can you give us a quick word about your most recent book? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Harry, for having me on. It's called In Hoffa's Shadow, and it's a book uh, that talks about my stepfather and his relationship to Jimmy Hoffa and how he got caught up in the Hoffa disappearance. My stepfather was Hoffa's right-hand man, and he also soon became the leading suspect in the Hoffa disappearance when I was a young boy. So it's basically my effort to retrace uh, his involvement in the disappearance to try to figure out whether he was involved. I think I show credibly that he wasn't. And also to explain what I learned along the way about the history of the surveillance state, the rise and fall of labor, the rise and fall of the mob, the connection between that and the Hoffa disappearance, and much more. How great. Next, Charlie Savage. Charlie is a Washington correspondent for the New York Times. He writes about national security policy, including presidential power, surveillance, drone strikes, torture, war powers, all the big ticket items, probably one of the greatest beats in the country. He's the recipient of most every journalism prize in the book, beginning with the Pulitzer Prize. He separately has himself written two essential books on the presidential power and national security. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks very much for being here. The The Pulitzer, I know, is normally given for reporting. What did you actually win the Pulitzer for? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, that was a million plus years ago, but it, uh, <laughs> in the second term of the Bush administration, I wrote 
a series of articles for the Boston Globe about executive power and the Bush administration and their expansive theory of it, its roots in the post-Watergate era in Cheney's period in the Ford administration. And the centerpiece of that was a, a several articles about Bush's unprecedentedly aggressive use of signing statements to claim a right to disregard sections of laws that he was signing and which also functioned as a roadmap of the executive power theories they were also advancing behind closed doors and things like OLC memos. And that series of articles won the national reporting category back in 2007. What an interesting topic. And finally, Steve Vladek. Steve's the A. Dalton Cross Professor in Law at the University of Texas School of Law. He, too, is a widely published expert on constitutional law, national security law. He's CNN's Supreme Court analyst, the co-host of the excellent and popular National Security Law podcast. He's also argued multiple cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Now, how did you come to argue cases in the Armed Forces Court of Appeals, Steve? Uh, they ran out of everybody else. Um, <laughs> the, uh, no, can, they, can they just ask anybody? They just dragooned the street? Basically, I, mean, I was walking down the street one day. No, um, <laughs> so there were, you know, the first case I argued in the Supreme Court was actually a consolidation of a whole bunch of cases out of the court-martial system. And that just got me really into some of the open questions in the court-martial system, um, you know, some of the sort of topics that the court-martial system is grappling with. And so my, my first argument in the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces was actually on remand from the Supreme Court after my first Supreme Court case. So I sort of did everything backwards. Uh, all right, but covered great ground anyway. So let's dive in. I, you know, I want to stop talking and get to the experts. It's a complicated and important subject, but let me try to at least lay out the skeletal facts and please correct me if I'm wrong. Soleimani's assassinated on the January 3rd of this year around one in the morning by a U.S. drone strike near the Baghdad International Airport. We, President Trump ordered the strike. It wasn't approved in advance by the Congress. It wasn't consented to by the Iraqi government. The Trump administration defended the strike as an act of self-defense. We'll get more into that. The controversy arose after the killing as to precisely when and on what basis President Trump had ordered it. Trump claimed we had tremendous information without elaborating and in the post-killing classified briefings in the House and Senate, many members were left frustrated at the paucity of concrete evidence and the failure to explain how Soleimani's killing had adverted a, and this is an important term of art, imminent threat to Americans in the Middle East. We could come at this from many directions, but let's start here. Although, uh, let me include in the question, a sub-question, is this the right place to start and why? But first... Was it an act of war, the killing of Soleimani? And, and I mean, it sure feels like it. This is how World War One is said to have started. But is it one in, in 2020 and why or why not? And I serve this up to anyone. Well, at the time we are recording this podcast, it appears that we are not going to war with Iran, that they shot some missiles back at one of our bases, caused a lot of concussions, but no deaths. And that seems to be the end of it for now, although no one would be shocked. It was just the, the attack itself, uh, which I'm calling a killing, you could call an assassination, was it an act of war on the U.S.'s part? 
Well, I mean, even embedded in your question, and this is one of the things we'll be, I guess, unpacking here, is an assumption that it was an assassination, and you compared it to right. the killing of the Archduke in World War One, which was, you know, an out of the blue uh, killing of a prominent person for a political purpose. This, that's not how the United States government, at least, is framing this. They're framing it as an act of self-defense, and, and which raises the suggestion, which may or may not be accurate based on intelligence that seems murky and that we don't have access to, that he was already attacking and plotting attacks on U.S. troops, perhaps even imminent ones, and which would suggest that some sort of a conflict pre-existed this strike. All right, but well, let, but let me ask. So, Steve, uh, we claim that it's an act of self-defense. Does that itself mean it's not an act of war? I know it would have implications generally for legality, but are those mutually inconsistent categories, self-defense and act of war? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think it's not hard to imagine circumstances where the U.S. engages in, you know, things that trigger the laws of armed conflict if they weren't already that are still self-defense. And so, you know, for example, if on the morning of December 7th, 1941, the United States had shot down the Japanese torpedo planes as they were entering U.S. territorial waters outside of Pearl Harbor, that would be both an act of war and an act of self-defense. I think that the, the framing, I think, that that really is probably a, a, a more, I think, um, front-loaded way to think about the problem, um, is that the, the question is, was there pre-existing authority under one of the statutes Congress has passed? authorizing the use of force against al-Qaeda and its associates, authorizing the use of force in Iraq. Was there pre-existing statutory authority where the on-the-ground specifics probably are not that important as long as Soleimani was targetable within that conflict? Or does this fall into the incredibly murky gray area of unilateral presidential uses of force where there's this you know, ever-ongoing and never-resolved debate about where the Constitution draws the line between what the president is allowed to do on his own and what he has to go to Congress for. So, I mean, one thing it suggests is maybe was it an act of war, which might be the thing that would inflame the imagination of the average listener, actually isn't the important question, and it's more a question of overall legality. And that turns – I mean, you've mentioned a couple of things. One, a sort of pre-existing state of hostility, and we do know that – it hasn't been a happy time for Iran and the United States and during the Trump administration, in particular, that Trump had disavowed the um, Iran pact. But then also, and it seems critically, the notion that there was some kind of previous congressional authorization that at least as a threshold might justify things. What would be or what, what will the administration point to as supposed authorization here from Congress? Well, we've heard, I mean, we've heard from the administration, at least from different officials at different times. And one of the frustrating things here is that the the legal rationale has apparently shifted, or at least has been different from different spokespeople. But the most common argument we hear from different administration officials is that there was pre-existing authority under the 2002 AUMF, the statute Congress passed in the buildup toward the war with Iraq, um, that basically, you know, Soleimani was someone who posed a threat to the United States and he was in Iraq. And the statute says, use of force in Iraq. Therefore, it should follow. And the problem, as, as Ryan Goodman and I and others have explained, is that if you actually read the text of the 
2002 AUMF, the specific force it was meant to authorize was force against the nation of Iraq. That is to say, the Saddam Hussein regime and the continuing derivative offshoots of it. The notion that, you know, an Iranian general in his official capacity while in Iraq um, was somehow the Iraq against whom the 2002 AUMF authorized his force is a real stretch, Harry. That's why I think the much more convincing argument, which is not to say it is convincing, but the, the stronger argument is the argument that this was all an exercise of the president's Article II power, which gets us into the trap of you know, figuring out exactly how much power the president has when he really is going it alone. All right. And let's get to that in a moment. But I'd like to plumb the depths of at least a possible congressional authorization. So, Jack, is the AUMF from 2002 the only possible peg of congressional authorization that the administration can hang the killing on? And what do you think of the argument? The administration's done a terrible job of explaining this, and I don't think they thought about it much. But from the beginning, I've thought that the best way to think about this or the the best way to think about it, if the government is arguing that it's lawful, is that the United States was authorized to be in Iraq and using force against ISIS and al-Qaeda, especially ISIS, under the 2001 AUMF, which President Obama extended to ISIS and which Congress, I believe, this is a little bit contested, but has confirmed in um, some appropriations. And then in the course of that armed conflict, the administration exercised self-defense in response to the Soleimani-sponsored attacks on the bases and the like. And, you know, we've been, ha- we've been having low-scale conflict with Iran for a long time. So that, anyway, that's the, best, that's the way that I think about it most fruitfully is that the AUMF authorized the armed conflict. And then when you're in an armed conflict and you're attacked, you can exercise self-defense. I think that's the most plausible argument they can make. So the 2002 AUMF is not the best basis of authorization here for for a bunch right. of reasons. The 2001 AUMF auth- has been interpreted to authorize the United States to be in conflict with al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And so when you're in a conflict and an, a third-party force attacks your forces, you can exercise self-defense against it. That's the argument. We're fighting al-Qaeda. We have the AUMF authority to use military force. And here comes other guys in to, you know, interfere and give them a hand so we can come in. That's the argument. Yeah. That's the argument. And all right. So I see that an argument for the use of force in general. But doubling back now to you, Charlie, that doesn't follow from that, that any use of force, I think, unless is this the administration argument is in quote unquote self-defense, certainly not what the normal person would think of as self-defense. How would international law or, you know, how would you even argue that as a matter of common sense? The guy's driving by the airport. We, you know, got him in our sights and we we do the drone and, oh, it's, and we were just protecting ourselves. How does that work? I think the answer to this spins out more from what Jack was just saying. Although I disagree with him that the 2002 AUMF is not also theoretically available here, depending on what the facts are. Either of these two AUMFs, or maybe both of them as a matter of belt and suspenders, authorize the presence of United States troops in Iraq. The 2001- Can I trouble you just for the listener? The 2001 AUMF in a sentence was what? And the 2002 was what? The 01 AUMF was post 9-11, go get Al-Qaeda, and has been interpreted to also mean associated forces of Al-Qaeda now encompassing ISIS. 
the 2002 authorization for military force was pre-authorization to invade Iraq to take care of the purported threat of Saddam Hussein's non-existent weapons of mass destruction. And they're both still in existence. They're both still in existence. Either way, we're there for that mission. And then this would be the argument. But again, we're all just sort of projecting what would be a good argument for them to make that they haven't made in public, filling in the blanks here. But I take it it would be, whether it's the 01 or the 02 AMF, we're there, we're authorized to be there, and here comes the Iranians and the Quds force to attack those troops. And so with the authority to deploy comes the authority inherently to defend yourself. Okay. You don't just have to stand there and be shot because the person firing the bullet is not the foe you were deployed to take care of. And this is why I think a lot of the arguments that the O2 AUMF does not have a role here, including from you, Steve, so I'd be interested in hearing your your response to this, have not really engaged with this element of how, even though Iran has nothing to do with Iraq and Saddam Hussein, uh, because Iran is purportedly attacking the troops, the troops are there under this law, this law there or encompasses unit self-defense. If it's true that Soleimani was plotting an attack and posed an imminent threat at that moment. And that's why imminent threats comes into this, even though we're also talking about statutory authority. So Steve, please do respond, but include this notion of imminent threat. It comes in as what? A matter of self-defense requires that the threat be imminent. And obviously we are in some ways twisting or putting pressure on the word imminent, what is its place in uh, assessing the legality of the action? And then what sort of interpretation need the administration proffer to kind of get there? So I think, I mean, I think there, there are two different reasons why this is complicated, Harry. And the first is that here we are in 2020 trying to figure out what Congress meant in 2002 about a conflict it could not possibly have thought about. So there's the broader problem that I hope we'll get back to of how this is basically, you know, trying to sort of um, decode and decipher questions Congress never thought about because Congress has largely abandoned the field. But on the merits, I think the other complication is imminent shows up in two different places. One is, as Charlie suggests, um, the possibility that if the troops are there under the auspices of the 2002 Iraq AUMF, and if while they're there, somebody else attacks them, then part of their unit self-defense right would be the right not just to respond to those against whom Congress initially authorized the use of force, but also to respond to those who attack them in the moment. Um, I don't think anyone debates that. I think there are two problems with applying that argument here. First, I think there's actually a pretty good debate and fight over whether the troops who are still in Iraq really are there under the auspices of the 2002 AUMF, as opposed to the troops who are in Iraq principally in the context of counterterrorism operations against ISIS, where it has been the argument of two different administrations now, as Jack suggests, that it's the earlier statute, the 2001 AUMF, that provides the, the authorization. That's why I think Jack was right, I think, to say the best argument the administration could make on the statutes, although we, it hasn't really made it yet, is that one. Um, and so we never get to the 2002 AUMF that's not, if that's not why the troops are there in the first place. But even if that's why the troops are there, even if we still think there are troops in Iraq carrying out the underlying mission Congress authorized 18 years ago, um, unit self-defense only goes so far. It cannot be that because 
you know, one Iranian soldier or one militia group attacks the Baghdad airport or attacks a U.S. contractor on day one, that on day 20, um, the United States has license to um, take out the, you know, a senior military commander who was not directly involved in that attack. So that's where the imminence thing shows up here in cabining the scope of unit self-defense under either of the AUMFs. And then if we don't have either AUMF on point, imminence comes back into the conversation as part of the broader conversation of the president's power to use force unilaterally under Article 2 of the Constitution. That's, that's why this is such a mush, because you know there are so many different arguments. They haven't been very well pinned down because the administration hasn't done a good job of doing it. And frankly, no one has forced them to, because unlike just about every other major action the government takes in our name, this is a context where the courts have, for better or for worse, said just about nothing, so that we're left to you know basically debate this in um, you know, academic parlors and in law reviews. In law reviews, I just want to say that I mean, as both uh, Steve and Charlie said, this is such mush because we don't know what their legal arguments are. We don't know much about the facts. I mean, Steve described it as you know one attack on a possibly one attack on a contractor one time, and I can't really make out from the newspapers, but there appears to be um, going back a very long ways low-level conflict between Quds forces being guided by Soleimani and other forces perhaps being guided by him in a variety of low-level attacks against the United States. This goes back to the middle of, you know, the, the early middle 2000s. And so to really know whether this was, and I don't think it has to be an imminent strike. If there's a series of strikes against us, you don't have to wait until there's an imminent threat again to strike against in response but I think it really turns on you know, how how much was there of this ongoing conflict, and we just don't know the answer to that. And I, I suspect that it's more than has been let on, but I don't know. My understanding is you don't have to wait for it to be imminent in the colloquial sense of the term, but there is a kind of maybe counterintuitive legal argument that goes like this. Look, it's very hard to get a clean strike at this guy. Here he was. We knew we could get him. The next time that we could get him, who knows when? It might have been months or years. So in that sense, it's our last clear chance. And he's in general about the business of doing missions and hostility toward our troops there. So it's not the case that it needn't be imminent. It's just the case, says the U.S., that imminence would be defined in this pretty open-ended way for this specific person's purpose. Do I have that right? Can I say something in response to that? Please. I'm not sure that's factually true. I think that we've, according to the newspapers, several administrations have been thinking about a strike like this against him. I'm not sure this is the last clear shot we had. It is true, however, that the Obama administration and the Bush administration before it, and now apparently the Trump administration, in the counterterrorism context, uh, and this is a an edgy case because it's it's terrorism, but it's being state sponsored. They have embraced ever broader, ever mushier, ever thinner conceptions of eminence, with a six part balancing test that really gives them tons of discretion under that test to construe eminence very broadly. And so I would just expand the point you made to say that for three administrations now, there's been a very broad conception of eminence in the self-defense context and, and growing broader all the time. 
Got it. And by the way, that is the context. Yes, imminence matters because it's going to be integral to setting up a claim of self-defense. Do I have that right? Again, I'm not sure everybody agrees with me, but I don't think imminence is as important here if this is a response to a series of ongoing armed attacks by Soleimani-controlled or directed forces. And I just don't know the facts on that. I don't think we have a good sense of that. Let me just ask about the law, and we'll get to Article 2 arguments, but under sort of congressional authorization track, is it in fact, is there real controversy about whether imminence is a legal requirement? So is there a respectable argument that says imminence is actually not necessary? I'll just say one thing and let the others respond. We've engaged in lots of self-defensive attacks going back to the 1980s. Bobby Chesney has has written about this and, and tracked all the cases that were responses to armed attacks on us where we fired back. We did that against Gaddafi. We did it against bin Laden. That's a standard self-defense move if these facts fit into those past facts. So imminence has not always been a requirement if it's a response to earlier armed attacks. All right, let me ask it this way, rather than setting up the argument. Where does imminence come from? Assuming it is an argument, is, is it from a pre, what pre-existing body of law makes it a a critical concept. Imminence comes up primarily in the context of anticipatory self-defense. In other words, imminence has been the idea that you don't have to wait until you're attacked to preemptively or anticipatorily attack. And the question is, how close and how threatening does it have to be for you to be able to exercise anticipatory self-defense? Got it. But even more basically, it comes up as that question as a matter of international law. I mean, you know, what's the body of law? It's under both domestic law. It's been an interpretation of the president's self-defense powers and under international law. Does everybody agree with that? Does Steve and and Charlie agree with that? I I do. I just think I I think part of what's part of what's exasperating to me about this conversation, not not this particular one, but just in in general. (laughs) Sorry about that. It happens all the time, which is, you know, you get really smart people debating both the extent to which imminence matters and then also the definition of imminence. And, you know, Harry, we never get closure. And so, you know, Jack said, I think quite tellingly, it has been interpreted to mean he didn't say by whom. Not the courts, right? It's been interpreted by OLC in a progressive series of opinions where OLC has, you know, I think understandably chipped away and sort of, you know, claimed ever sort of marginally broader understandings of both different statutes authorizing these military force and the president's power to go it alone. And, you know, Harry, we're, we're lawyers. I mean, we're going to fight over this language till kingdom come. That's inevitable. The problem is is that so long as there's no mechanism for resolving these disputes, the power will necessarily accrete to the executive branch because no one is going to stop this president or future presidents of whatever party from adopting ever more sort of divergent or at least creative interpretations of the same existing language and precedents to support new theories of military authority. That's, I mean, that's a really good point, and it comes up in other contexts here as well. Let's move to Article 2, but what, I mean, one final question, Charlie, is that really the case? I mean, there are some legal opinions where it comes up. Now, we find the court's often being extremely deferential, but at least the U.S. is forced to state a position and there's adversity and other side states its argument. When, if at all, would you expect 
let's st- stick with the Soleimani killing to be actually the subject of any kind of court action? Or is, is the expectation that, you know, this will always be the stuff of sheer academic contemplation? First of all, I do not anticipate that this is going to be receive any kind of definitive judicial adjudication, which I think is the, the point you're trying to make. We're arguing about something where there is, uh, as Al Gore might say, no controlling legal authority. Uh, and therefore, it's going to be good for podcasts and uh, hypotheticals in law classes and maybe angry op-eds, but not a <laughs> uh, definitive answer. I would say, there, though, that there is some domestic law where eminence is, arrives from judicial hands rather than, you know, office of legal counsel lawyers who have been hired by our president and are arguably just trying to help him do whatever he's trying to do. There's more in the criminal law context. You see it where police are shooting suspects or ramming their cars in a high-speed chase to bring an end to that chase. And courts are more likely to rule that that was an unconstitutional excessive force if there was not what appears to be an imminent threat posed by that person, and more likely to find that the police were justified in summarily shooting someone if it did look like they were imminently about to hurt somebody else or the police officer. And so in that body of law, we can reason by analogy to more national security style situations and say the concept of summary use of force without further ado uh, in self-defense needs to have some kind of Uh, uh, now or never element to it. But when you say you don't anticipate a judicial resolution, I mean, do you mean that there's really no, will not be an opportunity to have any kind of lawsuit over this? Or do you mean that one may occur, but the courts will be so hands off in the area that they're, you know, they won't give any guidance? Well, I suppose in theory, the estate of Suleimani, his wife or whoever could come here and file a wrongful death lawsuit. We saw that with the father of Anwar Alaki after he was droned in 2011 by the Obama administration. But as we also saw, I mean, maybe that's geopolitically unlikely, however, it just seems kind of wild uh, to think that would happen. But even if it did, I do think the second part of what you're saying would then come into play, which is we have a history here, including in the Alaki litigation, of courts that are extremely reluctant to uh, weigh in on the merits when the executive branch has done something in the national security realm, in the foreign policy realm, and tend to find either that the person doesn't have standing or that it's a political question and just dismiss without scrutiny of what actually happened and whether that was justified. All right. One more question before we go to the straight Article 2 argument. I mentioned in passing assassination, and I think, Charlie, you you said, you know, that might be tendentious or that matters. What, if anything, is the significance of whether this is an assassination or a killing? In what sense is assassination loaded here as either a legal or political term? Well, legally, I mean, I'll take that one. Legally, it's loaded because uh, U.S. law bans assassinations. So Executive Order 12333, I think it's Section 2.11, but it's been a while since I, I looked. But, you know, since 1981, at least within the executive branch, there has been a, you know, unflinching policy where uh, the U.S. is not engaged in assassinations. Now, the the key, as Hayes Parks laid out in 
I think what we can say is a canonical 1989 memo is that not all targeted killing is assassination, that in the context of an armed conflict where the U.S. uses military force in the manner consistent with international law against a valid target, that that's not assassination within the meaning of the assassination ban. So at least from a, a legal analysis perspective, that's why the, the term is fraught. Obviously, it has optical implications as well. And just roughly speaking, then, what is an assassination? I mean, I think an assassination is when um, an individual is killed, is is singled out to be killed for some political or um, or or national objective, unrelated to a valid use of force in an armed conflict. I mean, I, just to just to add to that, Harry. I mean, the, the one of the reasons this is such a difficult nut to wrestle with is that there is no definition legally of assassination. The executive order does not define it. There's no federal statute that defines it. And so it sends one looking to one's dictionary for notions like surprise killing of a prominent person for political purposes. But that's still not that, – that, that leaves a lot of room for executive branch lawyers to define whatever the president is wanting to do in front of them as not that. And we, we saw some of that with the Hayes Park memo that Steve mentioned. We saw some of that with – memos that the 9-11 Commission report talks about existing around the time of the late 90s thoughts of assassinating or not assassinating, killing justifiably Osama bin Laden, and in the uh, the declassified Anwar Aliki memos as well, where the claim is that a killing in self-defense is by definition not an assassination. Right. And that brings us back also. That's remarkable that it's not defined. So it's just simply the, you know, don't assassinate, but we don't know what it means. No, we know what it means. It's the, the executive branch, as Charlie was alluding to, and as Steve was alluding to, the executive branch has interpreted it, and it has interpreted it in at least three places I know of: the Hayes Parks memo, the memo that Charlie alluded to that explained why the covert action killing of Osama bin Laden in the late 1990s. They 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 reasoned OLC reasoned according to the 9/11 report that it was not an assassination because it was an exercise of self-defense. And if it's an exercise of self-defense, then I suppose the argument is it's not peacetime, it's military. So that's the way the executive has interpreted it going back to the 80s. But it's, again, an executive auto-interpretation. It's not written down anywhere else. And it's not terribly uh, – um, it's not very transparent either. All right. We've been talking so far about you know the potential of that, in essence – what the you know the the killing was just authorized as within previous authorizations in two thousand one or two thousand two by Congress and by the way where we're talking about Congress there's a whole element of the War Powers Act that we may or may not get to but there's a big other argument here that one supposes that Bill Barr's Justice Department might be eager uh, to make or or any any robust Justice Department defending the president's war powers so uh, Steve back to you You're, you've argued in the Supreme Court what's your like first two sentence submission about Article Two before the justices start interrupting you. That it's important to understand that in the uh, 231-year history of our constitutional system, there's exactly one Supreme Court decision interpreting the scope of the president's Article II power to use military force. It's 157 years old, and it's actually pretty equivocal in its own terms. And so when thinking about the scope of the president's Article II power, we should be keeping in mind 
the extent to which the founders really were wary of a standing military and of a broad military authority, the extent to which the only sunset in the entire constitution is the one for army appropriations that every two years Congress had to reapprove funding an army. And we should keep in mind that, you know, in this context, because as Charlie mentioned, it is so difficult to obtain judicial review, we should be ever mindful that the more we are indulgent of broad theories of Article II power, the more that is only going to, I think, encourage yet further expansions because there's going to be no one to meaningfully push back. So that, okay, yeah. so so actually, you're responding here, I guess. I, so in other words, you've stated a pretty good claim for why the the court shouldn't gallop away and accept the government's submission to just make this all as as an expansive understanding of Article Two core authority. Jack, what's the two sentence argument for a sheer Article Two power here? In the argument I was making earlier, it's the same power. When, the, when there's unit self-defense by a commander in the battlefield, that's effectively the same power that the president's deploying. It's, it's, an artic- it's ultimately an Article II power. It's not – at least I think that's the best way to see it. So I think that the self-defense analysis is largely the same whether it's a pure Article II argument – and I was mixing pure Article II precedents and unit self-defense precedents – whether it's a pure Article II argument or whether it's an argument that we're authorized to be there and we're exercising unit self-defense. I was just wondering if the other two agree with me. I don't think there's a novel separate argument under Article II. There certainly is in some sense. Let me, you know, let me just ask the basics because I think maybe we're jumping ahead of the basic submission in Article II. What is, if you will, the Article II argument? There's a source of power I guess it's in Article 2. How does it work? You know, what's, what is the basic submission? The idea is that it's been recognized. Again, Steve is right that only one Supreme Court decision has recognized this, but it was discussed in the debates of the convention uh, briefly that Article 2, the, uh, the president has authority under Article 2 to exercise self-defense of the nation. It was conceptualized. Um, it's probably under the commander-in-chief clause. It may have been under the executive power but it's been recognized more or less since the beginning that the president, as the prize cases that Steve was alluding to, need not wait to defend the country to get Congress's approval. Now, the question is, what is the scope of that power? The, the, the existence of a self-defense power in the presidency under Article Two, I don't think is contested. The hard question is, what is the scope of the power? And as with everything else we've been discussing, presidents have interpreted that power ever more broadly over time. For the last couple of hundred years. But my point was that, you know, once you recognize that there's a self-defense power in Article 2 and once you accept or not, but it's happened that the president and the executive branch has interpreted that power broadly, then once you get to that point, the argument on the merits looks pretty much like the argument we were making earlier about unit self-defense. I see, but I, I'd like to pause on it a little bit longer, just the nature of it. So Jack mentioned the notion of self-defense, and you know, I think the need to be nimble, respond quickly. I, you know, this came up even with Lincoln. Is that the notion, or is there not a sort of broader, even more muscular argument? Hey, I'm the commander in chief. I just get to. I don't. It doesn't even have to be self-defense if I, where it comes to hostilities versus foreign nations. That's my Ballywick. Maybe they can make me notify them or maybe they can cut off the purse. But in the first instance, I don't need anything other than the general 
take care and commander in chief responsibilities in, in Article Two? Or have I have I stated something that is really not in any kind of common parlance, even among you know more the more conservative um, uh, enthusiasts of of executive power? So two things are raised by this. One. It is the case, not just among conservative enthusiasts of executive power, but democratic administrations as well, that the executive branch has developed a body of its own thinking by which the president, as commander in chief, can launch uh, limited acts of war without congressional permission, not in a national self-defense necessarily, but even when it would merely serve to advance American interests as the president sees them. The, the most seminal memo here was written during the Clinton administration by Walter Dellinger when he led the Office of Legal Counsel, and subsequent administrations to include the Obama OLC have expanded it, such as in their memorandum about why Obama could launch the Libya war in 2011 without congressional authorization. That said, the mostly that body of law is emphasizing limitations, strikes whose anticipated nature and duration and scope are sufficiently small that they fall short of war in the constitutional sense. I would think that a Bill Barr type sort of maximalist executive power believer would not think that that even limitation is necessary. He famously told George H.W. Bush he could launch the Persian Gulf War without congressional authorization. But this leads me to the other thing I wanted to throw out there. I believe that all three of us are have been students at Yale Law of Harold Coe, and he has argued that even if there is some kind of self-defense here in general, that because Suleimani was a high-ranking Iranian government official of a sovereign state, not a terrorist, non-state organization person, Therefore, the risk of war with Iran was so great by killing him that it was different than all these other scenarios in which self-defense or unit self-defense or anticipated self-defense allow the use of force unilaterally without going to Congress. And as I understand his thinking, and I'm not endorsing it, I'm just throwing it out there, while the, Trump could have authorized under the AUMF 02 or 01 or whatever his theory was, self-defense, summary killing of whatever Hezbollah-type people might have been planning to attack, actually the ones who were going to actually strap on the bombs or hold the, the guns. He could have killed them, but he could not kill Suleimani as their orchestrator or boss or planner because he is a member, a high-ranking member of a sovereign government, and that is essentially starting a war, which kind of brings us back to the beginning of this podcast. I would like to know, just for the sake of conversation, what uh, Jack and Steve and even you, Harry, think of that. I'll just say, as the as the far and away the most ignorant person here, it sure seems germane, and whether it's a legal concept or one of political accountability to fire a drone at an actual state actor and, and, a, and a prominent one as well. I, I don't see how an important, how a cogent and comprehensive system of war powers can't t- would not or could fail to take account of that fact. But uh, obviously, Jack and Steve have, have more sophisticated things to say. 
So I just say a couple of things about that. Clearly, that isn't, I'm not sure it's a sound legal argument, but clearly any prudent, deliberate, uh, deliberative commander in chief would consider the consequences of striking a high ranking official in a sovereign state. I'll just say that I don't think it works as a legal argument, but it depends on the facts. And I'll just tell you, say two things. One, we practically did that to in Libya in a context that wasn't even self-defense. We didn't actually target and kill Gaddafi, but we basically put him on the run and were enabled him being killed. And that was in a context that wasn't even self-defense. In the context of self-defense, I think the way that this would come in legally, I didn't see Harold's argument, is through some kind of proportionality question. And the question would be whether this strike of this magnitude with these consequences was proportionate to the threat, the prior attacks and the like. Um, you know, if Soleimani had been leading attacks on U.S. troops in a low-level way that had resulted in hundreds of killings over 10 or 15 years, and if the latest ones were threatening and serious and one person was killed, I think that the argument's not very hard. If it was killing a head of state because, or near head of state because he was, because of one single episode that resulted in one person being killed, the argument would be more powerful. So I think if it has legs, it kind of depends on the facts. I think I largely agree with Jack. I mean, I think the the reality is that I think that that is as much a political calculation as it is a formal legal one that, you know, there's this instinct that I think is not unique to Harold, but is actually one that we see in some of these OLC opinions, that there's just a qualitative difference between, say, standoff uses of force, a drone strike, firing a missile from a you know, a Navy warship versus, you know, sort of ongoing sustained uses of force, the introduction of ground troops, and that there's an instinct out there that Article 2 may allow a lot more of the former than the latter. I don't know that it's easy to tie that to a particularly compelling definition of self-defense or imminence. I think it's more, you know, a, a candid concession that there does come a point where, you know, Congress really does have to buy in. You know, I'm not sure that as a as a sort of legal matter, it makes sense for that line to be based upon the degree of the U.S. commitment of force, as opposed to the you know particular justification for the use of force in that context. But you know, Harry, this just goes back to the broader point that the the Soleimani debate, such as it is, really is the same debate we've been having for 50 years. And it's a debate that, you know, as Charlie said, we're going to keep having over and over again because this is just going to keep happening. You know, I think there's there's no reason why a president under current law would be disinclined. Let me, put, let, me, let, me say, let me say it differently. There's nothing a president under current law would necessarily fear beyond being wrong um, in the context of, you know, using military force in these one-off standalone contexts because, you know, we've seen over and over again, regardless of whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration, that the political consequences tend to be incredibly modest. Right. And that raises two huge topics that we have to do in another hour sometime soon. But one, just the general, almost natural or hydraulic expansion since, say, the the you know World War Two of the president's powers, but also of course the whole War Powers Act and the and the notion of Congress's ostensible tools to cabin or equip the wings uh, of uh, of presidential hostile actions. All right, it's time for five words or fewer. A whole aspect of this we haven't 
touched on is different modes of congressional pushback, but we've seen a concrete example of this just yesterday with a resolution introduced and that passed the House to repeal the uh, justification in the 2002 AUMF for the Iraq war and its potential link to the Soleimani killing. And my five words or fewer question is whether that bill will A, pass the Senate and B, become law. Jack? No and no. Okay. Steve? No, but it really should. Charlie? No, because even if it passes, there won't be enough to override a presidential veto, which is more than five words. Sorry. That's that's like a dozen words. It's your first time on Talking Feds. We'll give it a pass. And I, deferring to expertise, will say no. Thank you very much to Jack, Charlie, and Steve. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.